Welcome to Word is Truth. This is Doug Presley. It is uh, August 18th, 2021, and we're ready to begin our worship service. Let's have prayer. Father, thank you for this time we have this, this evening. We appreciate the hour that we have, and we pray that it will be used wisely. And Father, we ask for wisdom tonight as we look at your word. We pray that the spirit of truth will teach and lead and guide us so that we can be more knowledgeable about you and your plan. All this we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. All right. Amen. So we are generally studying in Romans chapter 9, and that's where we are today. We will cover... Uh, Romans 9 verse 22 is where we are. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? So we're going to read uh, a little bit into that tonight. But we do have a couple minutes before we get started to see if I'm, I'm going to pause See if anybody has any thoughts or follow-ups from prior weeks uh, that they want to express. The floor is open. Well, um, I had a conversation with you earlier today, Doug, and mm -hmm. uh, I, I just thought that uh, I'd like to hear what your, your comments are. Uh, and we're talking about uh, John uh, chapter 20. Mm -hmm. We're talking about Thomas. This is uh, take off of what I listened to that you uh, your your sermon on Sunday, um, and um, about the woman in childbirth and the travail. Mm -hmm. And uh, but what struck me, uh, you know, we we you know when in fact doubting Thomas, I always thought. And it's right there in the scriptures. It kind of implies that he didn't stick his hand in the side of Jesus. Uh, he did see it and believe. Mm -hmm. He didn't have to stick his hand. So that's the side thing. But yeah. what was profound to me um, is how you detailed that those that went out in Jesus' name and uh, for different various reasons, they were killed. Uh, the disciples who were flogged, beaten, mm -hmm. jailed, told to go out and shut their mouth. Right. And they, they went out even with greater vigor and mm -hmm. greater uh, determination to spread the word of the Lord. And, uh, you know, all this, the signs, the, uh, the miracles, uh, and you get down to the end of the book, the uh, purpose of the book. Uh, it says, John twenty thirty. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which were not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. It's, it's, it, it struck me as so profound that at every point, Jesus laid out through signs, through miracles, through his death, burial, his resurrection, 
he even he came back, you know, Peter who went into the tomb disbelieving. He walked around like he didn't believe. He he was really unsure the the way it reads. Uh, but he proved that mm-hmm. that he was the risen Christ. Right. And um, um, it, it's it's profound to me that anybody could miss this that Jesus is who he says he is and how they could deny it. Um, it's, it's really uh, right through acts right on up through you, you see it, you, you know, you see the power of the spirit. Uh, we talked about, you know, the Lord uh, empowered the disciples with a, uh, with the Holy Spirit. In other words, he gave them the, the power of the Spirit to complete their mission. And uh, and by the way, did he give them the power of the Spirit prior to Pentecost or after Pentecost? In that instance that you mentioned in, on Sunday. Oh, yeah. So that is... Um... <clears throat> That is verse 20, 2020, where is it? Yeah, so 2022, 2022, it says, and with that, uh, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he gave another pronouncement about forgiving sins and uh, sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And so... But receiving the Spirit there is more in the uh, preparation for what they had to go through. And just to empower them in the days in which uh, they had before Pentecost. Because when it says, um, obviously, receive the Spirit, that wasn't Pentecost. Pentecost didn't happen then. But what he's saying is, I'm going to empower you. And we know that receiving the spirit back in the old testament which is where the disciples were essentially uh, that it was for empowerment for special positions for kings prophets priests people who did um, special work for god would have the spirit those who built a temple god gave him his spirit upon them to empower them and enable them and and so we usually think about the spirit being given not to everybody in the Old Testament, but for key people. And we know prophets, priests, kings, and others uh, receive the spirit. So are the disciples key people? Absolutely, they're key people. <laughs> they're they're the foundation of the church. Now, of course, even though they're not at the point where they're baptized with the spirit and so forth. They are the ones who are, have been chosen. And Jesus specifically chose each one of the disciples. And he says, have I not chosen you all? And even the one who was a devil? He said, except one of you is a devil. So he's talking about, this he talked about Judas Iscariot. So we knew that the disciples are very special. And when we read uh, in John 17, by the way, John 17, uh, Jesus says this to the Father. Uh, 17, oh, 
I get, he says, now he says, I have verse six, I have revealed you to those you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. So the father chose these particular ones. Now they know everything uh, you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours. All you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. That's a lot. We're going to get to those verses soon. Uh, and, but notice, he, the disciples are very special here. This first part of John is specifically referring to them, those 11 disciples uh, who would later become the apostles. So when you read John 17, in fact, this first part, you could think that Jesus' mission, uh, aside from having to... Um, Aside from having to die for the sins of the world, the salvation plan of God, this was a very important part of Christ's mission, that he would come, he would establish the church. And this is how he would do it. He says, on this rock, I will build my church. So it's important that these disciples uh, not fall away, that they stick together, that... but. They had renewed life. When they saw Christ alive, it was something else for them. I mean, they were beside themselves. Uh, on the one hand, they were cowering in fear. On the, on the other hand, you had them being renewed in vigor and uh, purpose and energy. Uh, everything had changed for them. They, they had renewed uh, motivation Everything Jesus said was true. Now we need to really think about the words he told us. I mean, it just opens up. Imagine. So when you see those uh, testimonies at the end of John as well, where he says, John 20, 30, and 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. There again, why in the presence of his disciples? Because those are the ones in particular that need the testimony. <clears throat> They're the ones that need to be convinced beyond uh, any doubt whatsoever. And they're not recorded in it. He couldn't record them all. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. So that's pretty clear. But if you go to 21, he even gives a further benediction in this way. In verse 21, 24, and 5. He says, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus, and here it is, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So notice, uh, he's saying... Uh, the, the, there's not enough books to write it in. There wouldn't be enough room to write down all that Jesus did that was miraculous from their perspective. So he did write some of them down. So Jesus did far more 
than he was uh, expected to do as the Messiah. He, he did overwhelming evidence of his Messiahship, of who he was. And it wasn't even close. And as we read in, from time to time, people were sick. They brought people to Jesus who were sick. Uh, when they learned that he was going to be in some town, all the sick people from all over different regions were going there to meet Jesus. And guess what it says? And he healed them all. All of them. Not, and some couldn't get to get in and get healed. No, he says he, and he healed them all. This was a common refrain that we saw in Mark, a good, good book that talks about the actions of Jesus. He healed them all. And he performed signs and wonders. He walked on water. He raised the dead. Uh, on and on of miraculous things that, that he did that are recorded for us. Not to, There's no way we could have followed this man around for three years and watched him do all these things uh, and then chronicle all of them. There's just no way to do it. He's exaggerating here, obviously, in verse 25. But it is a, an exaggeration that is meant to tell that there, is, uh, there was overwhelming evidence that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Putting our faith in him is a wise thing and not something that we're wishing for or that we hope might work. It is something we know with confidence that will work. Jesus performed all that was necessary for us to be saved. All we have to do is put our trust in him. So I'll pause, see if others have thoughts or do you have any follow-up? Uh, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, that's very clear to me. All right. Well, with that, we should go, we should get moving right into uh, the book of Romans. And we're, you have notes. And um, in your notes, we have these words. Uh, this is Romans 9.22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Wow, we got to get to some of these words. Even though I suspect that you guys have already figured out what some of this means, but we should go through it nonetheless. It is quite interesting to be able to question our existence. How have we done this? When we question our Creator and disagree with His eternal purpose, we are literally questioning the ground on which we stand. While this might sound arrogant on our part, it is well within our ability to do so. God has allowed us this reasoning power to examine our circumstances. We should investigate as far as it takes us when we find that God has an eternal purpose in all of this. Then we must sit back and learn from him, as the text states. Why did you make me like this? This attitude displayed is beyond Israel's place 
especially when they have not taken the time or given the attention to allow God to reveal himself. So instead of really examining, Israel says, why did you make me like this? And I'm just going to jump right to Israel because from the context, we already know who is the antagonist here. It is Israel. <laughs> we're not, we're, we don't have to create some straw man and say, well, if somebody were to say, no, we already know who, who said it and why they said it. And we understand God's response to it. So this is where we are in the context. If you're not clear on that, um, I can offer you previous uh, verses that we have gone over that establish what the context is. And that's what we're looking to do, establish the narrative. So we know what is being spoken of. We're not guessing. We're not trying to add our own. Uh, context to to try to fit words so let's dig into this one so this is the first phrase what if God so God is saying think with me reason with me and just imagine God cannot say that to all forms of life all right, so if I I know people do talk to plants so that's probably not a fair uh, statement because people do actually talk to plants and they would like to even re enter into reasoning with them uh, calling them their children and all kinds of things but uh, plant life cannot reason it's life it's created by God but it does not have reasoning power neither does animal life animals operate on instinct God has placed within them instinct that is operative according to their nature so if it's a, a lion lions will act a certain way if it's a if it's a alligator alligators will act a certain way and all of that follows right we do see some variation because you can't tell exactly they're not going to do exactly the same thing but there's a there's a range of things that they they can do now, you won't see an alligator working on a computer. You won't see an alligator at the voting poll, you know, getting ready to cast his vote. But so it, that will be out of nature for them. So the thought, I'm going to read Isaiah 1. Isaiah 1 is our text that helps us understand this point. 118. This is what God says. And this is with regard to salvation. And he's talking, we should note, to Israel says, come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They, though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. And when he says like wool here, you know, you know he means white. Okay, that's the point. So, so in, in this case, God is saying to Israel that he has an answer to their problems. So instead of them living in their problems, uh, exploiting their problems, God is saying, I got an answer to your problems. If you just come to me, I, I can take away your sins. I have a plan uh, through the sanctuary system that I've designed. 
And so Israel can live above uh, the circumstances that they were in. But God, but God is saying, we have to settle this matter. We have to reason together. I like the King James, come now, let us reason together. Uh, NIV, come now, let us settle the matter. I think it's still, I like reason better, but uh, settle the matter will do. So, so that's, imagine, we can do that because we're human beings. God made us this way. And this is not something that we can second guess. Listen, even second guessing something is a part of the way God made us. We can't, we're, we're reasoning, thinking creatures. We're not creatures who uh, operate by instinct or have life but don't have intelligent, right, intelligent and per personhood, we might say. So, uh, point B, God made creatures that can reason and think for themselves. We would not have this ability if it were not divinely de designed and bestowed. So the fact that we can even question God, that we can say, okay, we're going to talk about you now, God. We're going we're gonna to examine you, God. And we do this. We do this all the time. And certainly in our Bible studies, we we're we are not arrogant in how we question God, but we are constantly seeking more information, pushing the envelope so that God will tell us more, and He does so through the Spirit of Truth. He is sitting there waiting for us so that He can supply everything we need. So Psalm one hundred verse three is another verse uh, that I wanted to throw in here. So let's read it. Psalm 100 is one of those popular psalms that uh, people have committed to memory. I, I have, uh, years ago. But anyway, here's three. Know that the Lord is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Notice he gives these uh, these analogies of Him being the shepherd and uh, you know shepherding over sheep. And But this, literally, it is he who made us. It is not about evolution, or we just evolved in some way over time, billions and billions of years before we got to this place, to where we can now think for ourselves. Uh, we were made. God made us. We're his. And we, we have to allow for God to be smarter than we are, more powerful than we are, more wise, all of that. He, his capabilities are obviously way beyond ours, even though it seems like we can think about anything we want, do it in, in terms, but there are limitations to what we can do, and we understand that. But God made us. When you say when we think about he made us the attributes that we have as human beings we don't always want to look at everything as fallen. I know Adam fell and yes human human nature was corrupted by the sin nature but what we don't want to lose is the fact of who we are essentially. 
the qualities of our nature of, of human beings that make things that make us human the personhood the individuality the rapport we can have with one another the fellowship all of those things the sensitivity that we have in terms of being human beings uh, we already talked about choice and uh, reasoning power all of that uh, make us unique and if we really need to recognize, even fallen, that God has made a masterful thing when he made the human race. He made the first human being in Adam. And, and the way he designed it is all of us would be like him. We would come from him. Even down to the sin nature we have, that uh, is part of what Adam provided to what God's creation was, and that is uh, a spirit of rebellion, or what we term sin nature. So, just I just don't want you to think, oh, everything about us is horribly ugly. No, because it would lose the very fact that we're created in the image of God. Even though it's marred, we are still created in the image of God. And there are some good things about us that we can think about, about who we are. Now, I understand about we're fallen, and, and yeah, we don't, um, we don't meet the standard of God's justice and his righteousness. We don't. But that doesn't take away from us everything there is about our humanity. All right, let's keep going. Point C in our notes is, even though God is certainly sovereign, and he is, and nothing we think or do can change that. Now, just imagine God's sovereignty, and we've been reading about this whole chapter. Literally, even though he's willing and transparent enough for us to discuss it and even question him about it, there is nothing we can do about it. Or to change anything or any decisions that God has made. But he is gracious enough to allow us to question him. So we can't change it. Uh, and allowing us to, But he allows us to reason together with him about his eternal purpose. That's overwhelming. That's astounding. That's amazing. The fact that he would allow us to enter into that space where he designed all things. I mean, that's what you have to really consider. When God is saying, uh, when he tells us, come now, let us reason together. He's not talking about Israel now. He's talking about us in this age. And now when we put those scriptures together, and here it, here's our come now, let us reason together. It is, if we go to Isaiah, I want to contrast these two scriptures. So we got Isaiah chapter 40. Let's go to Isaiah 40, 10 through 15. Let's see if we can't get this real quick. So Isaiah 40, 10 through 15. Here we go. See, this is 10. The sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with the mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand 
or with the breath of his hand, marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on scales, and the hills in a balance? Who can phantom the spirit of the Lord, or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Imagine, God has given you a lot, a lot of language here of what we might call language of accommodation. But one thing to note in this, that no one, verse 14 in particular, 13 and 14, who can fathom the spirit of the Lord? Or who can, who can, inst or who can instruct the Lord as his counselor? Who? And the answer to those questions is nobody. No one. Verse 14, whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? No one. Who taught him the right way? Nobody did. Or who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? And the answer is no one. Now, just hold your thought there. When we go to 1 Corinthians, which we will get to, chapter 2 and verse 16, we find where this verse was quoted in our context. When I say our, I'm talking about the church, those who are in Christ. So this is what it says, for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Do you know where they got that from? Now you do, right? You know where Paul uh, kind of snatched that verse from, but, but just know what was on Paul's mind when he said this. Because he said it to really say, if it was Old Testament, nobody. Who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? No one. But watch what it says. But we have the mind of Christ. So this mind of Christ, what, is it, what are we talking about? So, so why is it the mind of Christ? Because we learned in John, everything that I have... The Father has given me, and now it belongs to me. That is why the Spirit is making it known to you. Remember we went through John 16? And Christ said, all things that the Father has are mine. What is he talking about? He's talking about the eternal purpose. That is what the mind of Christ is. That's what he has. So when it says, who has known the mind of the Lord, so it's struggling. Well, in the Old Testament, that wasn't revealed. He didn't tell anybody what the eternal purpose was. It was hidden. It was, only God knew what the eternal purpose was. There were no outside counselors or people that God had to consult with and, and reason with. It was only God. It was hid in God. But now, God has opened up his eternal purpose so that we now can think about it. This is why it says earlier, Things that eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, and what no human mind has conceived. That's verse 9. That's what we have. 
And, and here it is. You saw it right there. It, prior to this, no, Israel couldn't get to this. But guess what we've been talking about? We are really examining the design of God, how he thought about it all before time began. And how could any of us possibly know what that is? Well, the Spirit of God, <coughs> excuse me, has these things God has prepared for those who love him, and these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. That's verse 10. So just know that the eternal purpose, we're when we talk about, okay, God, why did you do it this way? Well, well God, it, it, I see that you did this, and I see that you did that. I'm not sure why you did it that way. Well, for Israel, they didn't know. They couldn't know. All they had to do was say, okay, God, you, you, you know. No, we weren't there when you did all those things. But now, God is allowing us to reason with him around his eternal purpose. That's what's happening here. We get invited in. The inner circle where God is allowing us to know these things. He, did, he left those open questions to, for Israel because he was trying to let Israel know, you, you, that's not your place to know these things. But for the church, it is our place. So there you have those two verses contrasted. Let's keep going. Verse uh, point D in our notes. What comes next when God says, what if God, so he's postulating here, what if God Word. And, you know, when he's saying this, he's not th throwing out some extraneous thing. He's trying to suggest to us that God could operate in just this way. And he did. Okay. So what comes next is God's reasoning and the transparency Israel does not deserve. Now, when I say Israel does not deserve, remember... What I'm saying here is they were asking questions in an arrogant manner, telling God he really didn't have a right to do what he did. And if he did, if he did it the way he's saying he did it, then the word of God has failed. God has cast away Israel or something, or that he broke his promise. And that is absolutely not true. We're going to keep going. I see our time is moving forward. We have to move forward. So Israel in their arrogance is why I say they are out of place. But when in this age, God will not only reason with those who are Jews, but he will save them and unite them to the person of his son in this age, if they believe in Christ. So that that is grace, I must say. Point uh, number two now in our notes what if God, and here it is, desiring to show his wrath and make his power, make known his power? What if he were desiring to do that? What, 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 let's look at this verse. So first thought is we must be sure to pay attention to the context here. What does he mean by uh, show his wrath and make known his power? So the context is Romans 9, 17 and 18. Let's read it. <clears throat> it's right there, same chapter. 17:18 says for the scripture says to Pharaoh I raised you up for this very purpose 
that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. There you have it. This is what uh, literally God is saying when he says, desiring to show his wrath and make his, his known his power. And so just to know, God does this. He said to Pharaoh, I'm, I'm, I put you in this place so that you could do what you did. You are an actor on the stage, the earth stage, and I put you in place, and I knew how you would perform. You did exactly what I thought you would do. And by, because of that, by you doing that, I was able to pivot off of your behavior so that the world would get to know who I am and they would see my power. Literally, that's what happened. So, 18, therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. And we saw uh, Pharaoh was the one he wanted to harden. And what does he mean, wanted to harden? Suppose Pharaoh had given in. And right away, and it would have been like, oh, it's over. God couldn't have had the display that he wanted for showing the world who he was through uh, him extricating Israel from the most powerful nation in the world. So, point B, show his wrath. What does he mean by show his wrath? God is saying that he wants to show his righteous standards and his justice. Right? That's what he wants people to know about who he is. And, obviously, his plan to create Israel, which I didn't include, but that is part of it. He wanted people to know that he was creating this nation, this is who I am, and you can't stop me, you can't stay my hand here. So, wrath, in this case, is equal to an anthropopathism, which is really language of accommodation. I don't want you to think or God really doesn't want you to think that he is has temper tantrums and gets very, very angry and wrathful and runs around stomping his feet. That's not the point, right? The point is that you know that God's justice is at work in, whenever his righteousness is violated. So his justice is what uh, levels the playing field whenever his righteousness is violated. Point C, and to make known his power. By demonstrating his judgment against what his standards reject, his character and power are revealed. Uh, that is, forcefully removing Israelites from Egypt. That's the context that we have. That's when we talk about what happened with Pharaoh, God's given that as an example. First, he talks about him creating Israel, how he formed Israel. Then, and how it was all him his choices. Then he went to Pharaoh and said, yeah, even Pharaoh had a role to play in the formation of Israel. And he shows how Pharaoh resisted and the plagues and uh, back and forth and Pharaoh hardened his heart. He changed his mind. He relented. He, 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 all that uh, to show his power. And not only his power, but his patience. Right? That We're going to get to that in the next uh, phrase. He had patience with Pharaoh. He could, we'll get get to that, but, but just know that God is demonstrating something about who he is. And he's using the wrath of Pharaoh to show um, how he's going to operate under this stress. And what, what would God do if somebody said no to him? 
Well, here we, here we have a standoff between Pharaoh and God, and it goes back and forth. It's actually very interesting reading. I would rather read it not in the King James Version, but in the NIV. It's much more, I don't know, you get rid of the Old English, and it makes a lot more sense. Okay, so uh, that was point C. Let's read that again and make known his power. So what is that phrase, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power? So by demonstrating his judgment against what his standards reject, his character and power are revealed, right? And that's how they're revealed by God extricating Israel. Point D, God wanted a showdown with Pharaoh. He wanted this. And he got it in full view of the world. So just note, is there something wrong with God using the wrath of man here? Is there? Actually, there was um, Psalm 7610, which I didn't read in point, the, the first point. Let me just read that real quick. And I think you, you know this verse. Most people do. Psalm 76 and verse 10. It says, surely your wrath against mankind brings you praise. Uh, so um, notice in this verse, and the survivors of your wrath are restrained. This is King James. If we were to read it in King James, it reads like this. Uh, surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. The remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. So notice this is the common phrase that people remember, even the wrath of man shall praise him. And that's the truth of this verse, really. It is. Uh, no matter what you do, the anger of man and God's wrath uh, demonstrates God's plan. And when it says shall praise him, it is to say it's working toward God's ends, right? In other words, you, you can't do anything against God's plan. You could raise your fist and say, I'm going to fight God. But ultimately, God will turn that around and use that for his own good, for his advancement of his plan. He will use the wrath of man. So, so in essence, um, it's like one of those uh, wrestlers, right? Who, when you grab them and you exert energy in one way, instead of them trying to meet that energy with the same force that you bring, they use your own force against you. So instead of you know, fighting with you in the middle, they just allow you to go lean forward and they flip you. And then, I hope that this is a bad illustration because I'm sure you're not seeing, I just did the move and flipped somebody. But anyway, that's how it works. You, you, you have that same, you use their force against them and that helps them uh, to fall down. Not just, you know, you basically help them go in the same direction they're going. So that, that is what happens with the wrath of man. And God knows this already, right? He, he understands this. It, it wasn't like, you know, he, he was sitting there like we're reading a book and, and wondering what will happen next. God already knows what will happen. In fact, we read, as we read, he said it from the beginning. I want you to go to Pharaoh. He's not going to listen to you. He will harden his heart. But don't worry, you know, this, that went on even before the plagues began. So uh, let's keep going. He wanted that showdown with Pharaoh. This is point D. And so he got it in full view of the world. Point number three, he endured with much patience 
vessels of wrath. Okay, so th th this is the next phrase, point number three. God could have made Pharaoh do what he wanted, but he showed much patience and restraint. I know we don't think he did, but yeah, he did. If we read Exodus chapter 9, and I want to go to read this. This is a very important verse. Exodus 9, 14 through 16. We might have already read it, but in any case, Exodus 9, 14 through 16. Here it is. Uh, and this is the context of... This, this is the seventh plague. For I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine heart. And oh, I'm still reading King James. Hold on. Let's go back to NIV. <laughs> Sorry. So Exodus 9, 14 through 16, right? So it says, uh, at, or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people. So you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For now, for by now, this is, here it is, for by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with the plague that would have wiped you off the earth. Now notice, God is saying, it, is no, it, was e it would have been easy for me. He didn't say through many plagues or, uh, I could have just did this in one plague. If you would have said, no, I could have just wiped you from the face of the earth. That's what God is saying there. But then verse 16, but what? But I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So there, it's the same thing we've been talking about. But notice what God is saying in verse 15. He says, hey, listen, I'm doing this for a reason. I'm laboring with you for a reason. I could have wiped you off the earth with one plague, but I didn't because I, I have purpose in this. That's what God is saying. He's showing some patience and restraint here. Why? Because he has a reason for, for doing it. Point B, why? And, and I already said, this is verse 16, and I'm just quoting it just so we remember that I might show my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That's verse 16. So point C in this, vessels of wrath. Okay, what is vessel of wrath? It is those who resist and oppose his will. And when we say his will, we have to expand that now. Because somebody might say, <clears throat> as far as, uh, you know, they're looking at the Bible and they're saying, okay, so God has a will. What is God's will? And people would have to answer that in ways that are according to the context in Israel or what it was revealed at the time. But the fact is, we have an understanding of God's will overall. So no matter what dispensation we're talking about, we know God's eternal purpose. We know why he did that dispensation, why he took the time uh, to, to lead over people in a certain way. Uh, because now all of it fits into his eternal purpose. So uh, the point is, is that God knows that there would be people who would oppose his will. Now, a good example of that, if we go to the tribulation, is the beast, the false prophet, right? Uh, Satan, they oppose his will, and they are actors in those final events in the tribulation. 
And God does show the destiny of each of them, and he shows what they did, and he shows uh, how he handled it. So especially when it comes to God's eternal purpose, because that's what they're opposing, ultimately. So you could say you hate God, but what do you mean you hate God? Well, you hate God, and you hate what he stands for. And God created all things for a purpose. It didn't. He, we didn't just show up here and one day God said, hey, by the way, I'm God and I'm over you. No, God created all things. He created all people. And every person that comes on the earth, he gives life to. So God is very much in control. He is not aloof or somewhere far or distant. He is close to the, to the happenings that are going on on planet earth so when people oppose him that is not something that is taken lightly god understands that and he uses that for his own purposes for instance there was obviously pharaoh in context that's what we've been reading about but also there's other ones like judas iscariot judas betrayed christ now i can ask a lot of people who is judas iscariot and you know, most everybody will probably get that answer right, that he's the one who betrayed Christ. How did he get his name so, uh, you know, commonly understood and, and among everybody? It's because of his role that, that well, even though we say his role, but he played a role in Christ going to, to the cross and, you know, being betrayed and all of that. For 30 pieces of silver, you know the story. And he was one of his disciples, and and yet he betrayed him. So everybody knows the story about Judas. But God used that. God knew. Jesus knew that Judas was uh, going to betray him when he called him. He was the betrayer. A couple times he says, all of you are clean, except one of you is a devil. In John chapter 6, he said it even earlier. He's, he, when he, when Peter said, um, um, well, Jesus said to them, to the disciples, are you going to leave too? And, and, and Jesus says, no, no, I'm sorry. I'm getting mixed up. So, uh, after some disciples left, Peter, um, was, was concerned. And so Jesus says, uh, are you going to leave like the rest of them? And Peter says, no, uh, you have the words of life. And then that's when Jesus says uh, that all of them believed except one of them was a devil. So just imagine, Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. But also, know this, that Judas was chosen by Christ. So if Judas was chosen by Christ, Christ didn't choose people on his own. Christ chose people that the Father told him to choose. And then Christ even says in John 17, all of them, I have all of the ones you gave me, except the one that was, you know, the son of perdition. So it all kind of works out. Remember, God used the wrath of Judas, you could say, the the betrayal of Judas to praise him. Now, we could have easily read John 6 to alleviate all that, but don't worry about it. You can read it on your own when you get a chance. Okay, so he has endured with much patience. 
vessels of wrath. And here's this last phrase, prepared for destruction. So, first point, since God knows everything about time, the beginning and the end. Uh, so, I just want to read that because, uh, you know, just want to make sure we are all on a, in one accord when it comes to this. So, Revelation, this is at the very end, but this is not the only place it says it here. There's lots of places. Uh, uh, 22.13, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first letter and the last letter in the Greek alphabet. The first and the last, the beginning and the, uh, the end. So, so, this is what I mean by the beginning and the end. This is where he's, he's at the end, he's at, he was at the beginning, he's at the end. This is what he's saying, I know it all. This is to say, I know everything about time. So we must also th see things from God's perspective as well. God is impressing upon us to see things from his perspective, not just from our perspective. We don't know what's going to happen, but God says, I do. And he tells us things that are going to happen. He tells us things that happened in the past that we would have no knowledge of. And he tells us things that will happen in the future that there is no way we could possibly know. So I said, i.e., in other words, some examples of this are his foreknowledge. God has information about who was gonna, he was going to choose to be in his plan. He knew who those people were. He, Israel was foreknown. The church is foreknown. Right? And then there's also predestination. God not only uh, knows people who are going to be uh, used in his eternal purpose as he executes his plan, but he knows what role he wants them to play in that plan. So, for instance, we say predestination, like we are uh, have been marked or um, predestined according to uh, his image and his likeness. This is Romans 8. This is what our destiny is, right? This is our lives were marked out for us even before we existed. God already knew we would exist and he already planned that our lives will be united to the person of Christ in a special relationship. And we talk about the baptism of the Spirit. And election means he would choose us, right? And he chose Israel for Israel, right? He chose those who would be in Israel. So in the same way, uh, there's no way anybody could know those things. So, but we have to start making sure we don't just see things from our perspective, but because we have the Word of God and the Spirit of Truth, we are able to see things from His perspective. Point B. While knowing the end of the story, Pharaoh would protest and not believe or relent. God used his disobedience and stubbornness to make a point to the world. And I hope the world got the message. I, I don't think they did as much. They got enough of the message. But we got a stubborn world. This world is evil. and But God has given testimony. Or notice, we could say, of who he is. And he is establishing who he is to the world. Not just in some small corner, in some cave. Somebody said they had a revelation, and uh, okay, well, we have to believe them, or not. No, we don't believe them. 
but but the way God operates is well, I, I should say Islam. That's Islam. They we have to believe that somebody in the cave by themselves received some revelation or something. That's Israel. But if you see the way God works, and you have seen over and over and over, there is literally no disputing what he has done. His power has been uh, echoed in the whole world. Right? Everybody knew it. All right. So he used Pharaoh's stubbornness to make a point to the world. God did that. A person said, is that okay to do? And the answer is yes, it is okay to do. God used the arrogance of man in his favor. It, he, just like the wrestler, right? You, you push against God, God uses your own uh, force and energy as a weapon against you. So point C, prepared. Okay, here it's prepared for destruction. So for Pharaoh says, uh, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, I'm qu quoting a scripture, okay, that has to do with what it means to be prepared. What does it mean that God prepared these people for destruction? And here's the scripture. For, the, for scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose. Notice, for this very purpose. Or in other words, prepared. <laughs> I prepared you for this. It is literally the same thing. So when he says God prepared them for him for destruction, what does he mean? He means that he's going to use the Pharaoh's resistant and refusal to relent to make a point. And Pharaoh was the perfect person because he had that in him and, and he wasn't going to uh, change his mind. That was his choice. He says that I, that I might display my power in you. In other words, you're, you're the most powerful man in the world. And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. And he hardens whom he wants to harden. That's Romans 9, 17 and 18. That's just right here in the context. I don't have to look far. I don't have to say God prepared some to go to hell. That, you know, this is what some people say. So, well, they won't say it that way, but literally, if God only chose some people to be saved, well, what did he do with the other people? He left them to be lost. Well, he's the one that made them lost, right? He's the one that allowed the sin nature to be passed down to everybody in Adam. So God, that's the wisdom of God, because it, like it says, he is uh, every, well, I want to read that verse real quick, just so everybody can have. The thought is in Romans 11, toward the end, it says it this way. Uh, For God has bound everyone over to disobedience. I know that sounds str strange when I said it earlier, but I want you to hear it from Scripture. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he could have mercy on them all. Notice, he doesn't have mercy on some he has mercy on all of them. His grace goes to every person that's ever born on planet Earth. Yes, every person that's born on planet Earth is dead in, in their transgressions and sins. They're born that way. This is the bad news. But on the, God did that, yes, but he did that so he could have mercy on them all. 
That's the, and this verse says, it's wisdom. Verse, the next verse, oh, the depth and riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Right, Th there it is. I mean, that's the truth of the matter right there. I mean, it was wise for God to do what he did. So, that's, so prepared is not what some people have made it out to be. Uh, so therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, he hardens whom he wants to harden. We, we covered that in good detail. Point D. So they're prepared for destruction. So let's look at this phrase, for destruction. So Pharaoh did not have to go into destruction. Pharaoh, so when we say for destruction, we're talking about being lost. right? Even though these people are lost, because of their opposition, obviously, to the only God who can save them. But they're lost because of their opposition to his eternal purpose. And, and so here, listen to this. Pharaoh, so Pharaoh did not have to go into destruction. And I'm giving simply John 3, 16 through 18. God loved the world so much he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him, and that's including Pharaoh or Judas Iscariot or... Any other person that you could think of, <coughs> excuse me, any other person that you can think of, they could have eternal life by believing in Jesus Christ. They were born just like everybody else, spiritually dead, under the wrath of God, with an old sin nature, right? All the bad news, they, all their righteousnesses are filthy rags in God's sight. There's nothing good that they could do, not even one. Everybody was in that boat, not just Pharaoh, not just Judas, not some people. All have, he bound everyone over to disobedience. So Pharaoh didn't get like a double portion of disobedience. He got, oh, Pharaoh just took what, what his sin nature gave him and he added his personality to it. You did the same thing. You took what your sin nature gave you and you added your personality to it. Hence, your sins. Right? But none of that is the matter. Because Christ came and paid the price for every sin of every person that would ever be born. He, done. Paid. So it's not even a factor that our sins are somehow against us. Whatever Pharaoh did, it, did had, it had nothing to do with Pharaoh being saved. He could have believed in Christ and he could have been saved in a moment of time. Point E. In fact, Pharaoh had greater opportunity and encouragement to believe than even more than even more than most. So Matthew eleven, twenty through twenty four to illustrate that point. I could make some bold statements, but I'm also giving you uh, some scriptures as to why I have such reasoning. Matthew eleven twenty. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chosirin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable in Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, you, uh, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that 
it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. So this is Jesus pronouncing judgments upon these cities that refused him. Uh, he, you know, this is, I mean, even after miracle, after miracle, after miracle, and they still turn their back on Christ. So listen, Christ is saying to those cities, you know what? If Sodom had what you had, they would have repented long ago, right? Uh, so this, this is to say that it, it is to say that they had even more light than uh, some. And if you think about Israel, well, they had more light. And Pharaoh here, Pharaoh had a lot of light because God showed him his power. Pharaoh could have buckled his knees and said, "Okay, God, I see you are more powerful," but he was arrogant. And God knew that. He knew it. So that's the point there in point E. You get a chance to look at this even in more detail if you like. Point F. So this is a scripture, and it sort of speaks to this to some degree. This is Genesis 50 and 20. So you know the story about Joseph and his brothers and how his brothers did such a horrible thing to Joseph. Yeah, they hated him. Yeah, Joseph was arrogant with his coats prancing around and all that with the multicolored coat. And yeah, he he did uh he didn't do the wise thing. He wasn't very tactful in how he presented what God told him. So, but the brothers responded with anger and malice and all sort and and they were going to kill him, but they eventually sold him to the Midianites. And all of this happened, and Joseph went through a series of things, and slavery, and so forth. And um, at the end of it, Joseph rose to uh, the place where he was equal power with Pharaoh. Pharaoh had handed everything over to Joseph. And now his brothers came, and after they went through this whole thing about, uh, you know, he didn't want to tell them who he was, but he wanted to see his brother, and then he wanted to see his father, and all of that happened. Uh, but this is what he said at the very end of it. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Now, just think about this for a minute. The brothers, they did this in anger, in wrath, because they were mad. Now, you can't say that that was God's will. I know you you would probably say, wait a minute, it all kind of worked out the way it flew. Well, but but their wrath was against Joseph was not God's will. I mean, God knew that they would respond in this way. It doesn't mean that God wants them to respond or that that's the way he, sh he responds. He used the wrath of man for his own purposes. And what happened as a result of that? God knew that by Joseph, by their uh, horrible acts toward their own brother, it would accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And that's exactly how it worked. And this is just another way to illustrate what this verse means to us. Now, hopefully... The thought is, as we go over these verses and we talk about all the things that, you know, they mean, and we try to bring scriptures to help under the understanding, the point is, is that you get 
a better understanding of what this verse means, that you walk away with a better understanding of how we should look at this verse. And hopefully the spirit of truth is uh, working in your heart, bringing to your mind your remember, remembering of what you have heard, so that when you need this information, believe me, it's going to be there. So we just want to have to stop at this point, but we'll come back next week with the next verse. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? whom he prepared in advance for glory. We're going to talk about that next week. That should be exciting. So let's bow our heads as we close. Thank you, Father. We're glad we had this time, this opportunity for focus on your word. Father, we recognize your sovereignty. We recognize how through your sovereignty you are able to accomplish your will, all with your righteous and perfect standards. So we thank you for not only all that you've chosen us, but we're thanking you for who you are, the fact that you're a good God, a righteous God. And we pray for each person that hears this, that this information may also help others come to the knowledge of the truth. We thank you for this church, the outlet that we have, to be able to talk about these things openly. All this we ask in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.